All right, so excited to be here with you today. So glad that you are online with us also, choosing to be with us as well. We are in the series, The Certainty. We've been here for a number of weeks, and we are picking up on themes that were planned to correlate with a, a grand conclusion that's coming up in the next couple of weeks, Easter next week, and then the explanation of the certainty as it all comes together in the last session, the week after Easter. But today we come to the cross, and we come to the cross in the presentation that Luke brings us, and so the certainty today is the title, At the Edge of Eternity. And so some things take place there at the cross that each of the gospel writers describe, and I say describe on purpose. The Old Testament prepared us for the cross. The gospels describe the events and proclaim the events of the cross, They really don't take a lot of time to explain what's happening. They describe what's happening, and Luke is no different. And yet when we come to this description from Luke, a lot comes through for us that is powerful, and I will be doing some explaining. Acts, of course, is Luke's second part work, which does the major explaining after the fact, and as do the rest of the letters of the New Testament written by the apostles or an associate closely related to those apostles. And so here we're at the most critical point in all of salvation history when we come up to the cross. I'll be using this diagram towards the end of today to talk that through a little bit as we continue. There are two statements that we're focusing on today from Luke. There are seven statements that the Gospels record from the cross, from the lips of Jesus, and these two statements that we'll focus on from Luke are only found in Luke, and as is his habit or his purpose, that he told us at the very, very outset of his gospel, the reason for his writing is that he's writing so that we might know the certainty of the things which we have been instructed. And so he's proclaiming the certainty, which we're going to kind of grip and get a hold of in its completeness uh, two weeks from today and celebrate the victory of Easter next week. Here we're celebrating a different kind of victory and we have to kind of begin with the realization that people look at the cross in many different ways. Many, many people look at the cross as tragedy. And perhaps many in this room too, I don't know. Many, many other people look at the cross And its message and how we're fixated on the cross here across churches all over the globe as foolishness. And then there are, let's just say like Jesus, a very few, by comparison, who look at the cross as victory. And I will let you guess where I stand. I hope you're not guessing by the end that we're looking at the cross as victory. Now, let's take a look at these two statements of Jesus from the cross that only Luke records. The first one is this, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Let that sink in a little bit. He's saying this from the cross. 
Imagine feeling what he's feeling. Did he deserve this? Was it awful? Was it tragic? And yet he's saying, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. The next statement is Matthew, or Luke 23, 43. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So those are the two statements we're focusing on. But I want you to just listen to the context of those two statements. Listen for those two statements to be stated by Jesus. If you want to look them up, we're going to be reading from Luke 23, 32 through 43. reads this way. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly, because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Point number one is simply this. Forgiveness comes from the cross. Forgiveness comes from the cross. Of course, if you were reading along with us in Luke, as I was urging you to do, and if this is your first day in the series, glad you're here. You have come towards the climax of the whole series. If you want to go back and pick up the early part, you can. If not, I hope this day settles in as something that's life-transforming and it stands alone, and it can do that for you. But if you were reading along, we already came to a description of an event that took place in Jesus's early ministry that three of the gospel writers record. Luke records it, Luke chapter 5, and in that, Jesus states that he has authority to forgive sins. Here's how the events took place. He comes to a home and the crowds gather, and among those crowds are scoffers and mockers who don't believe in him, or they're at least checking him out. They look with suspicion. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law, they're in among the crowd. 
People has, have already been hearing words about miracles that this guy has done uh, far and wide, and so the crowd is wall to wall, packed into the house. Four gentlemen bring a paralytic friend of theirs to try to get him inside to have him be healed by this miracle worker, but they can't get in. And so they do the audacious, they climb up onto the house, and they start digging through the roof. And as the crumbling parts fall through the roof, the talking stops and Jesus' eyes goes up to the hole and looks up at the faces looking through the hole, and they begin to lower down the man to where Jesus is. They couldn't get in, but they're bound and determined to get this man to Jesus. And Jesus says out loud, as he looks at this man, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Instantly, there's controversy in the room. And the controversy is over, how dare he say this? Now, Jesus senses that. The tension could be cut through. It's so thick. And then Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say to this man, and he turns to him and says, friend, take up your stretcher and walk out of here. Now, that's a great question. Which is easier to say? If all we're talking about is saying something, they're both just as easy to say. Unless you're trying to present this from the platform, you have to memorize and try to figure out which one's shorter or whatever. No, they're both just as easy to say. But that's not Jesus' question. Which is the harder miracle? To forgive this man's sins when you don't even know him? You don't even know what sins he's committed. He is a nobody who comes to this place. And how can he have the audacity to say to this man, friend, your sins are forgiven? Who does he think he is? And you can see why there's tension in the room. Besides, if he says this, who's to say whether they're forgiven or not? You can't see whether sins are forgiven. You can't see whether there's peace between this man and God. How dare you? And in their heads, they're thinking, this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus asks the question, which is easier to say. And then just to prove, and he says, to show that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to this man, friend, take up your stretcher and walk. That man could not get into the room because it was so packed that he couldn't get in. Of course, he's a paralytic and the other four couldn't get him in. I mean, you could have had some blockers and two guys carry you. You could have done something. They couldn't get in. It's that. But when he says, take up your stretcher and walk out of here, it was like the parting of the sea as they make room for him to walk right out. And the silence was deafening until there's a cheer from those who say, we've never seen anything like this. He has authority to forgive sins. At two levels. But this isn't explained. At one level, how can you forgive? Well, we get, I get forgiveness. I understand forgiveness and the value of forgiveness. And maybe that's because I've grown up in the shadow of the cross. As Jesus forgave, I learned to forgive. As I come before my Father to be forgiven, I 
want to receive that forgiveness, so I forgive. If somebody offends me, I want to be forgiving. All of those are sentiments coming from Jesus. But what about the person you don't know? I mean, if, if we walk out of this room and walk into the hallway and there's kind of a, uh, a buzz in the hallway and there's a pair of people that are walking in there and there's suddenly a husband and wife that we've never seen before start getting louder and louder and louder. Next thing you know, the man slaps the wife across the face, kaboom, and after shouting with the veins in his neck and red face. And the woman says, how dare you? And there's just this awkward, everybody around just jaw drop, watches and thinks, this is awkward. The only thing that would make it more awkward is if I walked up to this man and said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Because I don't know who this man is. The woman who's the wife who's been offended would say, how dare you? Only I can forgive him. What are you saying? He slapped me, not you, right? I mean, that's what she'd be feeling if I entered into their mess as if I had any say in it. And yet, this is precisely what Jesus does. And it's awkward. So he has authority on earth to forgive sins at two levels. He is the king. And he is the judge. That's only one level. The other level is, he is the offended party. And he will take into himself the punishment that this friend deserves for his sin. Every time you forgive, it's an acceptance of the pain and releasing of the party who offended you of the justice that is deserved for that pain inflicted. You let it go. That's forgiveness. Father, forgive them. And in some cases, he says, Father, forgive Jim. He knew better than that. Father, forgive Jim. He knows what he's doing. But he becomes the offended party and is able to release and has the authority to do so to release forgiveness. Forgiveness comes from the cross. What held Jesus on the cross? If I was in children's church, they would say, nails, nails held Jesus on the cross because they're such literal thinkers. And they would be right. Nails held Jesus on the cross. But that is not what held him there. He could have commanded whole hosts of heaven, army warriors that we cannot see, to come and judge the earth for what it's doing. But he came to do precisely what they were mocking him. Three times they mocked. You saved others, save yourself. What held him there and what kept him back from saving himself was the fact that he came not to save himself. He came to save others. He came to absorb into himself the penalty of our sin. What held him there? Not nails. His love. For his father? Yes. For his mission? Yes. But let's get really personal because his love for you and his love for me is what held him there. Even though, in a sense, we are the ones who nailed him there with our sin. It's his love that holds him there. 
Is he the victim of tragedy and injustice? No, he's the victor who came for this. He came to save. He came to save you and me and his love for you and me and for the others that kept taunting him. You saved others, save yourself. It's for the others that he won't save himself. Forgiveness comes from the cross. And point number two, eternal life comes from the cross. Let's revisit his statements. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The audacity of the statement, the puzzlement of the statement. He's saying this to the criminal. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Eternal life comes from the cross. By his death, Jesus is able to offer forgiveness. By his life, he's able to offer resurrection, new life. The old is gone, the new has come. He's able to replace our old life with a completely new life. And it's very different from life before we knew Jesus. It's a life now that the Spirit inhabits us and changes us, and the only way He can inhabit us is if the atoning sacrificial substitution is something that we allow to take place and believe in it and enter into. And when we allow it to take place, believe in it, and commit to this new covenant, which the old, whole New Testament speaks of, the Spirit of God enters in and brings new life, taking the old pattern, problem, power away. We have a new power. No problem for God. We need to walk with him. Point number three, your story comes from the cross. Your story comes from the cross. So we have three crosses visually here for us. The center cross is where Jesus hung. Luke tells us that on the right of him was one criminal. On the left of him was another criminal. And in this story, this cross divides humanity and it tells everybody's story. It'll divide humanity between those who are the mocking rejectors from those who are the repenting receivers, and there's no in-betweeners. The cross will eventually divide all of humanity into those who were the rejectors of Jesus and those who are the receivers of Jesus. That's as the New Testament describes what the cross does, explaining what the cross does. To illustrate it in the description, 
The way God allowed the events to take place, you have a hardened criminal on one side of him and another hardened criminal on the other side of him. And according to the other gospels, they're both maligning and ridiculing at first. But then according to Luke's gospel, we only hear from one because of what he's going to have take place with the other. There's an apparent change that takes place in the one hardened criminal that becomes a softened criminal. He actually becomes a repentant criminal. Let's start with the hardened criminal who is so hardened that everything he sees Jesus doing and saying makes him all the more hard, makes him all the more angry. He's defying government. He's hanging there because of his crimes, including from a government perspective, murder, insurrection, insubordination, at the, at the degree that he's a hardened criminal. We call them thieves. They're also involved in that and justified it for their reasons. And he was defying government. He was defying everyone. He defied Jesus. And the more Jesus was silent with him, the more his defiance got louder and louder. And then we have this ominous silence from Jesus who doesn't answer the accusation, answer the ridicule, answer the mocking. There's just this ominous silence and that marks the rest of eternity before God for this hardened criminal. You want to defy everybody? You still want to defy me? You still want to defy everything good and right? You are so arrogant in your position that you've flipped everything around so that you are right and it doesn't matter what anybody else says, you're going to continue on this path and you're going to get what you want. But then this is interrupted oddly by the other criminal who over the time span where they're all hanging there, six hours according to scholars, well, they're all hanging there. They've interacted back and forth and heard Jesus say things that this silent one didn't know what to do with. He had no categories for figuring this guy out and something starts to stir and change. How can a guy who is experiencing the pain that we're experiencing look with kindness on the very ones who have inflicted this upon him and say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. How can he do that? He reads in his face a kindness that is unearthly, a kindness he has never seen before. It's unnerving to him. It makes him feel all the more guilty. And he's heard him speak of God as Father, he'd never heard anybody address God that way. There's an intimacy that's there that he doesn't understand, a reality that he's seeing in an attitude, in a look, in a kindness, in the middle of his death. He doesn't get it. And then he starts to think about all the things that are taking place and they're ridiculing him as the Messiah and something flips inside of him. Is he? Can he be? I believe he's the first one that puts it together that you can be crucified and be the Messiah. Nobody put that together up to this point. He 
he turns to the hardened criminal, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. He hadn't seen that before. He is profoundly humbled. And a profoundly humbled man is in a position that is an extreme advantage over anyone else. They can see things they've never seen before. Such a clear awareness of his own sin put him at a profound advantage over so many others in our world. There was something so very bright and good and strong in this man's meekness. How can he bear such pain with such meekness and kindness toward those who are crucifying so cruelly? How can he be praying for the executioners? How can he address God so intimately? We are getting what we deserve. Is there any possibility for hope? He forgave them. Could he Forgive me? As soon as the thought enters into his mind, he realizes maybe it's true. And I think he's realizing it at the same time. It just blurts out from his mouth. Verse 42 and 43, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Here he is, just minutes away from death. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is faith. This is seeing Jesus as somebody other than the way everybody else is looking at him there. Dr. Donald Barnhouse was a pioneer in radio preaching who was a superb pastor for many, many decades in the early 19th century. Dr. Donald Barnhouse drew an illustration for the captain of a ship. It was actually the captain of the largest ship on the oceans at the time who went out of his way to go visit. He wanted to meet this Dr. Donald Barnhouse personally, whom he had heard on the radio. When he walked in on a Saturday to talk to Dr. Donald Barnhouse, it was discerning on Barnhouse's part to quickly recognize that this is not just a let me get to know you, you get to know me kind of exchange. There was a despair, a yearning, a hope. He needed to know something about the things that he'd been hearing on the radio. He's not a church-going man, but this whole gospel thing was something that was rattling him, and is it true? And, and he wanted to hear from Barnhouse. So Barnhouse did a quick chalk drawing of three crosses. And on these three crosses, he wrote underneath this. Under one criminal's cross, he wrote the word in. On the other criminal's cross, he wrote the word in. And under Jesus' cross, he wrote the words not in. He said, do you understand this? And the man was still puzzled. And he said, 
Jesus is the only person ever in the entire history of humanity that did not need to pray, Father, forgive me of my sins. Because he did not have any sin in him. Jesus is the only person ever in the entire history of humanity that could pray with the kind of effectiveness that he prayed, Father, forgive them, because he had no sin in him. The two criminals had sin in them. The man nodded his head and understood that. And then Dr. Barnhouse started putting some more words. He says, do you understand this? He wrote, on above one criminal's cross and on above another criminal's cross. And the ship captain seemed a little puzzled. And he said, have you ever, have you ever run through a red light? And the ship captain sheepishly said, yes, yes, sir, I have. He says, were you caught? He says, no, sir, I wasn't caught. He says, the, then what is taking place is you had sin in you. You ran that red light, but you didn't have sin on you yet. You hadn't got to the place where it's on you. It was only in you. These two had gotten to the place that it was on them. Sin had culminated to the place where there's no way out. It is on them. The consequences of sin have all come to the place where it's on them. You understand that? He says, yeah, I understand that. And then Barnhouse did something rather unusual. He erased one. He says, this is what took place. Jesus took this man's sin on him. The consequences of this man's sin is what Jesus died for, even though he had no sin in him. Look at the diagram. Which man are you? And the man broke down and began to weep. He says, I am the man who believes in Jesus. Who are you? The cross will divide all of humanity and we'll be separated by the judge and king and the one who's been offended by all sin, voluntarily so. According to Jesus, only a few will step into eternity like this criminal did. The moment he died, he stepped into eternity with Jesus because his sin, by his faith and repentance, declaring Jesus is king, when you come into your kingdom, when you come into your kingdom, he says, would you? And he, he couldn't say, forgive me. He, he, he didn't know whether he, if he could. Would you just remember me? I'll do better than that, Jesus says. Today, this day, we will be together in paradise. This is the epicenter of all of history. 
the epicenter of the power of all of God's covenants previous to the cross. Preparatory statements all leaning to this position that nobody got until you got to the epicenter of the release of forgiveness, the breaking of the chains, of the authority of sin, which gives the authority to death and justice from the sheer standpoint of holiness, but out of grace and mercy and covenant, God sends the way maker who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And we'll celebrate next week the release of all that power as now the Spirit can be released before saved and forgiven believers who have sin in us, but not on us, and he's even taking care of the sin in us through forgiveness and walking us away from sin, away from that power, and into a victory that is experienced by us, demonstrated by us, demonstrating the reality that this really works, the cross. Who are you? Can you remember the point in time when you literally asked Jesus to take your sins away, buried, removed, so that he could live in you forever? We are all right at that edge of eternity. Some of us have already entered into eternity with Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for sending Jesus, our Lord, our King, our Savior, our Redeemer, the way maker, the miracle worker, It is in awe that we think that you can remove sin's power and guilt from our lives. That we can walk with you with humility, see ourselves for the first time for who we are, nothing apart from you, but made powerful in the Spirit. We offer you ourselves. Forgive us. Walk with us. Fill us. Bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We'll have a prayer team to the, that side of the stage. That's your left, I guess. And uh, leaders, if you'd be over there with us to pray for anybody that'd like to have prayer about anything. You'd be pr- praying for yourself, for something you're going through. You could be praying about something about this message, praying for a friend. We'd love to pray with you. And hope to see you back next week for a, an exciting resurrection message entitled, Their Eyes Were Opened. Hope to see you next week. God bless you.